You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, everyday conversations between artist and audience member that highlights, demystifies and celebrates the classical music art form. You can gain exclusive early access to each podcast episode, plus a whole host of other benefits and trinkets by signing up to Thoroughly Good on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com forward slash thoroughly good. Hello, I'm keeping the introduction brief for this episode because... There's a lot of conversation between me and cellist Raphael Valfish that features in this 60-minute episode, Podcast 58. Valfish has a host of concerts coming up in London and across the southeast, plus a new album release of music by Ernest Bloch, Ben Haim and Corn Gold on the CPO label, details of which are available to patrons on the Thoroughly Good Patreon page. In this podcast, Raphael talks candidly about his formative classical music experiences, his admiration for cellist Zara Nelsova, his recollections of Jacqueline Dupre, the music of Ernest Bloch, and the Wigmore Hall appearance he made with pianist John York and his mother and Holocaust survivor last year. There seems to me no better way of exploring, understanding and appreciating an art form brimming with myriad possibilities, and the world it is inspired by or seeks to represent than by speaking to one of its much-praised and much-loved exponents. This episode is a case in point. We have met before. Where? You don't remember? No. <laughs> We've met twice before. Oh, God. All right, go on. <laughs> no, it's fine. I just suddenly... Yes. I wondered whether you realised. Um, we met, met once on a train in Gatwick Airport. Right. I was going on holiday. In fact, it was yeah. last year. I was going on holiday to Mallorca and you were going to a concert. And I yeah. came up to you and I said, I remember you. Oh. And you said to me, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> well, you see, I'm going down the drain. Uh, so that, that was that was the second occasion. Mm. The first occasion when I was page turning for you during um, John Taverner's Protecting Vale. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Do you remember it now? No. <laughs> well, I mean, I have played it a lot of times. Tell me where it was. Cheltenham Pump Rooms. I turned okay. the page too early. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. You signalled that with your yes, foot. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, that yeah. is a... Yeah, I, a... I was mortified by that. I'm sorry about um, that. No, 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 I was more sorry, you know. <laughs> well, it was we... quite a special place to well, sit, actually, now I come to think of it. Right in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's because it's a sort of enveloping piece. Mm. You mm. play it a lot. I have done. Right. It mm. comes in phases. It, You know, um, it, had, it had a huge popularity immediately after it was premiered and um it's kind of worn off a bit i think and it's more rare to be asked but i have played it at least 20 times if not more and recorded it what do you account to it for its popularity well it's it is a wonderful piece of music and it's very daring and it it i mean from the point of view of the listener it's it's completely mesmerising if you are prepared to be mesmerised because a lot of people find it boring. Um, and I did once play it in Tewkesbury Abbey in the, on a warm Sunday afternoon and the reviewer said they'd never seen so many people sleeping happily in one place. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's Job done, one, job done. That's also a, a good thing, isn't it? So I find that um, I mean, it's, it's incredibly challenging to play because it's non-stop 45 minutes, something like that. And it's, um, um, well, it's very intense, and, and a lot of it lies incredibly high on the instrument, which is very tiring physically to play, because you don't normally stay there forever, and you do in this piece. So you have to get in a kind of special training for it, I found. But um, it, it works very best in, in, um, 
in a church or a cathedral or something. I've played it in the festival hall and I've played it in places where it's slightly harder to create that ambience and um, holy feeling. Um, Did he write it for you? No, Stephen Islis. Right. And I went to the first performance and there was nobody there. That was amazing. It was a prom with lots of new pieces and uh, half-empty Albert Hall. And it was a sensational performance with Oliver Nusson conducting. And, um, you know, it, it became Stephen's piece very much so. But uh, like all good pieces, and that's how it should be, it, people raced to play it. You know, it, it was something everybody wanted to play. I had no idea that actually... It, I had this, this idea that it was sort of looked down upon because it was accessible or that it was sort of... Mm. Um, uh, didn't demand much of the, the listener. I adore it, by the way. I I'm don't not, think it, I think but it does I may, may have got that confused with something I think, else. No, I think it does demand a lot from the listener because... Uh, yeah, because of its length and because it is meditative and melismatic and uh, it's more like going to orthodox church and hearing the priest singing and putting up the candles and all of that it's not a, a piece with huge development you know it's i remember there being chapters. bells not actual bells no no the there's sound bells, bells that's that right. written into the there's bells and also um i mean the most extraordinary cadenza which is muted cello mostly on the lowest string um which takes a lot of work to to plan to make it interesting to phrase it there's no bar lines you know it's uh, completely free in many ways so anyway it's a uh, it's a special piece and i think i i've also played um an incredible piece of john taverner uh, his requiem which is for enormous forces whereas this is just for strings protecting veil or the projecting nail as my father <laughs> used to call it um the protecting veil is just a big string orchestra but uh, the the requiem which i've played is just a stunning piece with choir solo singers solo cello brass band full orchestra organ wow and i did that at the festival hall and it's the loudest piece i've ever had to play i mean i had to be mic'd up there's no question you have to be you have to be amplified but it's so powerful and i i, I think and it's presumably musicians on stage have to have protectors well i well, I mean, make it sound. Uh, well, it could it's be no. Kind of it's very. I mean, the thing is that it isn't a concertante piece like uh, the, the like. You know, you you need am amplification to be able to to be heard through all of this incredible text and uh, sound, and it, it's a magnificent piece. I love it.
Uh, you said that Protective Veil was daring. Yeah. How so? Well, it's daring because because of its span. You know, he he has written other pieces, interestingly enough. Um, uh, I've got the title of it now. Shorter work for cello and strings, so on. Um, but I think I think the fact that it is uncompromising. You know, he was such a um, spiritual person, John Davener, and um, I think he what why it's daring is it's successful that he manages in that length of time and sometimes just very long notes that expand. He manages to create this atmosphere, which is um, yeah. Uh, you said before I pressed the button, which is why I'm going to ask you now, um, <clears throat> that when you first started going to concerts, you heard great mm. musicians yeah. playing. Yeah. Who were they? I think well, I mean, on my instrument, on cello, of course, they are no longer with us because they were, in the 60s and 70s, they were already in their midlife. And uh, uh, So my favourite people were people like uh, Fournier, Pierre Fournier, Paul Tortelier, uh, Maurice Gendron, all these marvellous French cellists, André Navarra, Zara Nelsova, Leonard Rose. I mean, there were many. Uh, Rostropovich, of course, um, and many others. And then, um, yeah, so violinists such as uh, Isaac Stern, uh, Francescati, uh, who came to London, uh, Milstein. So these were people who had already been playing for... 30, 40 years, if not longer. And um, we had the great benefit here, of course, in London, where you hear everything, to hear mostly um, those people. They would come nearly every season. So you could you could hear them several times. Um, and um, I think that was fantastic. I mean, personally, I was my life was changed when I heard uh, the Brahms double played by Ida Hendel and Zara Nelsova with Adrian Bolt conducting. Wow. And that was, I heard that for the first time in my life, and the next day I said, that's what I have to do. That was, where, whereas I was, yes, I, I was, you know, seriously playing the cello, but this totally pushed me in another direction. What was it that you saw? Well, I just, I think, I, 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 I was so taken. Work, but as in, I was so was taken by the music and by the performance, which was fabulous, and I became a total... Uh, number one fan of Nelsover, um, who who was definitely the greatest female cellist ever.
she, she, um, I became quite friends with her later, which was a wonderful um, privilege. Um, and we corresponded and so on. And I would visit her and play to her and so on. Uh, on clarinet is so I'm not going oh, to right. understand. Uh, yeah. But uh, what made her, what makes her the great, greatest, greatest Well, Well, because uh, she had the most extraordinary sound. I mean, it's just the sound that and you, you, you just can't, you could hear two notes and you know who exactly who that is. Um, it, it was an intensity of sort of fire in the sound that, you know, I, I've thought long and harder how to recreate that, you know, that's incredible. And she had also wonderful grace, uh, incredible strength of playing. I mean, it was very um, unfeminine, I would say, you know, it wasn't, it was right there, powerful and uh, projecting. And, um, yeah, a formidable technique. I mean, uh, there were so many, many things. And um, I just, uh, I would say that for me, you know, she is definitely the the most all-around wonderful female cellist. And what, so... Seeing those musicians shifted your your energy, your drive, presumably. What what impact did that well, have was on a, the play? I, I think the difference is that, see, nowadays with the social media, young people, young music students are have a huge problem because they are constantly looking at their peers and comparing themselves and actually not doing themselves any good. And I think... Before we had all that, we would go and hear a concert by, let's say, one of these great people. And you would be amazed and inspired, but you wouldn't be put off because you'd say, well, I've got, that's what I'm going to work towards. So I think that when I teach, I'm always referring my students back to the older generation. You know, sadly, they're not with us anymore. Yeah, none of those people that I mentioned. Um, but luckily, we have a lot of recordings and film. And I say, look, don't worry about, you know, Joe Bloggs down the road playing faster than you or something like that. Listen to the way so-and-so played it. Um, because, uh, yeah, for the reasons that, A, they're not going to hear them live anymore. And B, they are the idea of instant success, recognition, um, whatever that means. It's not just in music. I mean, you know, we the whole... Um, culture is towards being an instant celebrity mm. and um, in music it's a very long life thank goodness it's not like football or tennis or ath- being an athlete or a ballet, dan- ballet dancer you if you keep well you're you 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 need to keep going for you know maybe until you're 70 plus and I think that um, it's good good to be successful but to to expect everything to happen at once is is uh, short-sighted because uh, it's good to grow and and take your time. Uh, I'd agree. I notice uh, a lot of young musicians whose names I'm not going to say um, are sort of billed as having made it already, uh, and, well, and that makes worried. me yeah. and that makes me think. Well, no, not really. You've kind of started because yeah, look at the age that you start. are. You're on. You've you've started and you've got to commit to this and. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there aren't many people who are actually saying that out loud. That's not to pick up myself, no, but no, but, I, I know but exactly because people aren't yeah. saying it, I, yeah. that makes me think. Oh, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm being conventionally old bastard. No, 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 no. I mean, uh, um, 
I think I think there's various factors. There are many factors, and um, I'm glad to hear apparently that in some countries and cultures uh, that is not the the way around. I think Japan, for instance, is not the you know they're not that interested in in totally only the young, but. Um, I think it's great to have a good start and and you need all the encouragement and the opportunities, but it's a very, very hard thing to keep it going. Um, what was your... But So when I perceive the 1960s and 70s mm. for classical music, this is this is something that emerges from a, a, a previous mm. discussion I had with Hilary... can't pronounce the surname from the London Mozart Players Associate Conductor, who was talking about how there was a consensus around classical music in the 60s and 70s that this was nourishing young people. And so there was no sort of, whilst there was a, a distinction between classical and popular music, everything was accepted. Mm. Um, when I see documentaries about classical music musicians, like I think Christopher Hope's documentaries about Baron Boim and... Oh, yes. Um, not Newpen. Oh, Newpen. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, um, Dupre and Dupre and Barenboim, for example. Yes, you know, that, there, yeah. there was a, there was a sort of a there was an enormous excitement around that, uh, and I'm wondering whether whether I'm uh, whether that's me being nostalgic about a past that mm. I wasn't present at, or whether that's how you recall it. <laughs> Itzhak Perlman, Daniel Barenboim, Jacqueline Dupre, Zubin Mehta, and Pinchas Zuckerman. Five individualists with a single aim. They've all come to London for a very unusual concert, which in its way will make musical history. But in spite of the fun, it's a very serious occasion. Their first rehearsal together. The youngest is Pinchas Zuckerman. He's just 21 and one of the greatest new talents in his field in 20 years. He was born in Israel, studied there and in America, and usually, he plays the violin. No, I do record it like that because I, I, I was there when that all was going on. And um, for instance, my mother, who was a member of the English Chamber Orchestra, um, so I was 13, 14, 15 at that time, uh, I went to loads and loads of concerts because they were playing with those people. I mean, they were... They were young stars. I mean, there was no doubt about it. And and there was a party atmosphere all the time. Um, just huge. Did they bring that with them? Or yeah, was that something it was there. It was, it was natural. There. I saw it, you know. They'd go, I went to recording sessions of Dupre. And, and it was just, she was having just the best time to change her dress and at the break. And, you know, there was no feeling of stress, really. I didn't, I just thought somebody having, finding it so easy. And... Um, and then, and the same thing with um, the, the, with the South Bank Festival, which was 
in the 60s or early 70s, I can't remember the exact dates, Baron Boyne was running that. And those that's when, you know, Mater came and played the bass and all that Trout film that you mentioned. Um, and it was. I mean, th- these were hugely gifted people who were just having a great time. And also, I mean, I have to say it, they were in a in a safe cushion. You know, they were immediately... Uh, I mean, it's... It's now just expanded. They they were immediately had good management. Uh, everything was sorted for them, you know. Um, uh, that's uh, it's rare. It still is rare, you know. Was and, it uh, was it a clique? Yeah, it was a. Group. Was a clique. It was a group of people who who, fine. But it was. I mean, whatever it was, uh, it, it it was very exciting. But I think um, it was probably the beginning of the youth cult, that because. Um, you know that started and it had its life, and still the the other thing was going on. You still had those older generation people coming and going, but then it just naturally peters out, and the then people, I think the whole drive towards young, not only in music but in everything, um, just became stronger. And yeah, it happens on TV presenters, whatever it is. Yes. Yeah. I wonder whether the audience felt that sense of excitement about them too. Yes, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not. I'm. Uh, I'm not. No, it up was, in my, it's not special. my imagination. And it's, I mean, you know, Dupre, uh, whatever one, if you were at the time, you know, people were critical. Oh, you know, she's sliding around, too, too much waving around. So there was a bit of that as well. About of course, her, there was uh, always. Okay. But you know, in retrospect, if you if you watch, um, perform her performances, uh, with. Just the sheer uh, visceral nature of it is is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. You know, take it or leave it. Uh, and and there's a uh, the risk of appearing cynical, like a yeah. cynical journalist. There, there's a tragedy to her, which makes her uh, a lasting. Well, I makes wrote, her legacy. I, I, I think. wrote a bit, an article. I shall show it to you. Turn it off for a second. Um, that's what I wrote, uh, and um, so that's the famous recording session of the EMI recording of her playing it with. You know, Did Jack. you attend that? Then? No, no. That's. I, I mean, it's interesting. Apparently, um, you know, they, the LSO turned up all grumpy and what's right. this? <laughs> and then apparently, word got round that something quite extraordinary is going on, and people started creeping into the session. Um, 
And she she played as she played, and then the, the article goes on well with the history. Um, uh, the, there's some nice things here, personal history, because Albert Coates, the conductor, uh, conducted the rest of the program of the premiere and ruined the premiere because he took all the rehearsal time. And Elgar was kept waiting, and here's Alice writing about it. I've got very confused. I'm sorry. This picture here is Jackie. That's Jackie. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's right. Barbara Ollie. Yes. That's Beatrice. And, Elga. Um, and then uh, that's me <laughs> but that's the Felix Salmond who played it for the first time he's a fabulous cellist and um, anyway it's I, I talk about all sorts of angles and why also about about why people find it what is it about this music that has because JB Priestley wrote a play um, called the Linden Tree and, it, and he includes the concerto talking about, well, here's the quote, actually. If you just read that, it's quite fantastic. It's just, just that. Yeah. Oh, it's almost like he's writing, writing the concerto in words. Yeah, yeah. And this That's is bizarre, the, isn't that's it? That's in the 40s he wrote this. So it's a, it's a whole phenomenon, you know. And I, I found it very fascinating. And so he wrote that, obviously, before Dupre. Yes, absolutely. It, which means that there was something about the, the, oh, yeah. the I mean, quality of the playing, music yeah. that was evoking yeah. that kind of thing. It's very, very interesting. But um, for me, yeah. when when yeah. so the recording I, I was introduced to the work by was hers. Yeah. And because of, because of knowing what her story was. It has a special... It, it kind of made it all the more tragic. But you and, see, and that's the thing, that had she not died... And had you not had that, I think maybe it would have not had that effect Indeed. on people. Yes. And that is a it's a it's a dark thing, and one it's, but it's very interesting psychologically. Uh, yes. Yeah. And she lived around here as well. She there's a blue plaque on a house in Purley. In Purley, yes. yes. I go yes. past there every day on the way to the not every day every time we go she, to the her, um, her family farm home was there. Yeah, right when she was little. Um, uh, this has been very useful. <laughs> so no, I didn't expect to go here. This is yeah. what happens yeah. a lot. I'm yeah. sorry. Um, uh, tell me about uh, Bloch. I want you to... Is it Bloch? Yeah. Tell me about him, because I've listened to some of his music, including the Trombone Symphony, which you're recording. I've done it. Oh, you've done it. Yeah, but this um, has come out. Uh, and I have an impression of his writing... Mm. Um, which is quite complex, mm. not inaccessible, mm. but quite complex mm. and quite rich. Mm. I'd like you to tell me what you think of, or give me a well, primer. Yeah, well, I mean, Bloch was born in Switzerland, um, but very. He went to to France. Uh, he went abroad quite quickly, and he was very influenced as a young musician, a young composer by French music, Ravel, uh, and the Romantics, Foray, and so on. And his early, very early music sounds like that. It hasn't got. It doesn't sound. Uh, we associate now Bloch with his what what he called his Jewish period. Mm. So there was a period around about the nineteen fourteen eighteen period that he wrote some big big works uh, based on Jewish heritage, so on Old Testament themes and so on. So Jeremiah Symphony, um, Shalomo. Um, and various other ones, Voice in the Wilderness. So all these um, Old Testament um, um, re references. 
And he, in so doing, when he was, so this was his, I think when he broke out of the French style of writing and found his own voice, um, he found a way of orchestrating and harmonizing that sounds like sort of coming from the Middle East. So it sounds like you're in the desert. It sounds like uh, Jewish music in the sense of the, the, the intervals sound like um, almost klezmer-like. Um, klezmer? Klezmer, you know klezmer. No. Cle well, clarinetist, you should know oh, klezmer. Okay, sorry. Klezmer <laughs> is, is the sort of folk, Jewish folk Oh, music. I see. Okay, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. And it's usually clarinet and violin. Right, okay. Fantastic virtuoso right. players on that. Obviously, I you should know that. Oh, well, <laughs> you'll enjoy it, I tell okay, you. Well, it's now. incredible <laughs> stuff, yeah. Okay. So, um, yes, I mean, it's that's really hard. It's a very hard thing to explain, but I think the impression, especially if you hear Shalomo, which is probably the greatest of all those works, luckily for cello and orchestra. Um, huge orchestra, I have to say. It's That's one of the reasons it's played rarely, because it's an expensive... Um, when you say huge... Oh, the, two harps, uh, oh triple woodwind, oh, triple brass, everything is oh, big. It's It's gigantic. <laughs> and it's, it's fabulous. Yeah, because a it, it's a symphonic <laughs> poem, isn't right. it? So what happens, is basically, Shalomo is, um, Shalomo means Solomon, and it's uh, the idea of King Solomon um, uh, commenting on the uh, vanity of vanities, you know, and uh, all, it's, it's the um, Ecclesiastes uh, theme. And so the cello is King Solomon, and the orchestra, uh, the courtiers, the soldiers everything else it could be a great film piece um it's epic it's not epic in length but it's epic in content um and it's just about the most exciting thing you can ever play as a cellist and it makes you smile why does it make you smile Well, because i love it right. <laughs> that's my favorite piece <laughs> i smile because the chances to play it are very rare oh. sadly you've got to really push it uh funnily enough i think in the states it's played more often but um, honestly, I cannot remember the last time it was. I remember Dupre playing it with Zubin Mehta. Uh, must have been 1970. 
Wow. And I mean, usually I keep my eye on what's going on. I can't remember it being played. Oh, once it was done at the proms in the 80s. Uh, is there a sense so the way you describe it yeah. uh, makes me think that and because I've seen you smile about it yeah. makes me think that as cellist this is like this is the ultimate it's one of concerto. them it's one of them no <laughs> because concerto, well I mean the thing is that the cello is often being used by composers as a personality so for instance Strauss wrote Don Quixote you know so the cello portrays the knight um, in a, in, again in a symphonic poem and that is another one I'd smile about because it's not just like playing a concerto you are, it's like being in the theatre uh, the orchestration is so sumptuous you just c cannot believe your luck to be sitting around hearing this around you so yeah close. I suppose that's, that's kind of what I'm driving yeah. at that, that, so when I it's recall playing solos in, in orchestras yes. there, is, there, there was a bit of me that thought great Mm. everyone's going to be listening to me now mm. this is my moment uh, and I suppose that's really where my question comes from is it the, is it because it's the biggest scale it's the ultimate work that there's a there's a bit of every soloist who thinks right well it's, it's, to, it's, part, it's to be part of that actually is to be part of that and because it is such a moving piece it really is um, there are many things I mean I'm so happy to not be playing the Algar, which, which I play a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. I mean, it's part of, you're doing this, bit and you're doing the Algar in the run-up to Christmas, though, aren't you? I, I saw it. I'm Am sorry. I probably, I could be, but I mean, it was Dvorak I'm playing. I've just played oh, it maybe, yesterday, actually. Maybe it's Dvorak. But, but, you know, which I love, I love to play, <laughs> but these kind of pieces, you know, which should be heard often, are rarely done, partly because of the extra players that are involved in it, so it's expensive. Um, also because actually Bloch has dropped out a little bit. It used to be much more uh, regularly, generally his chamber music, um, other works would be heard, but maybe dropped out of fashion a bit. You know, it's uh, also I, possible. It's not I, modern, you know, it's not contemporary music. But no, it is but it's rare. rich and it is, it's richly romantic. Oh, yeah. Uh, I hear, so when I heard it for the yeah. first time, I heard... Um, I heard bits of Simonovsky. Yeah. Um, I heard, and I don't know whether I'm going to make a sweeping generalisation here, but I heard a lot of mournfulness, a lot of sort of oh, yes. aching, yes. yearning, and sort of uh, almost like having a really thick sauce, mm. just to, you know, as though you've ladled on just a bit mm. too much thick sauce on top <laughs> of the steak. Um, and I don't know whether that's him or whether that is Jewish folk tunes. Yeah. Do you understand well, what I mean? No, I think it. I think that the Jewish idiom, I mean, the trombone symphony, which you mentioned, is um, has it's a miniature version in a way of the uh, of Shalomo. It's slightly uh, the trombone is not used exactly the same thing. It's not quite as as uh, a Hebraic as as the Shalomo, but. Um, it's the Hebraicness. It's the Hebraicness. Yeah, that, that is the, the mournfulness. Yeah. yeah, the mournfulness and the intensity and the sort of, uh, yeah, almost like prophet speaking, you know. That. Yes. This, the other work which I, which I play and have recorded, Voice in the Wilderness, which is um, absolutely great piece and I never, ever gets played, um, that is even more uh, like that and, um, well... Anyway, I, I love playing it and I'm more than happy to be doing it very soon. Where does it so tell me about the the Jewish idiom thing? What what is the 
reason for that mournfulness in the Jewish idiom. Are you able to tell me that? Yeah. Oh, golly. Well. Have I just asked you like no, a massive it question? Is, it, is a, it is a hard question because I haven't got a, 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 an easy answer. Um, but for instance, I think if, if one listens to the cantor singing in the synagogue or the call to prayer of the Muslims in the, you know, uh, minaret, there is a kind of, this, what I said, melismatic is a good word, you know, sort of free, you know, free, rhapsodic, usually with a a crying element, a plaintive element, plaintive, yeah, element in it. It's, um, you know, it's not all things bright and beautiful. No, no. no it's, yeah, the, it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's the opposite. It's, 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 it's more human. Well, you know, yes. it's more of the human condition in the in the world, uh, struggling against all odds. Mm. I think it's the. I mean, it's ancient, ancient, ancient uh, tradition, and um, so uh, and and these are ancient religions, you know. And I think actually there's a tremendous closeness between that Jewish sound and the Orthodox Russian. Um, you know, having played Taverna, which is actually Greek Orthodox, and played, the, for instance, the use of quarter tones, the sort of, you know, crack in the voice, that kind of thing. Bloch actually writes it in. You know, he writes it into the part. And uh, um, as does Taverna, he, he, he indicates that. Because it's, uh, that is characteristic of, of, the, um, of the singing and of the sound. Oh, sorry about that. Well, no, it's fine if you want to get it. <laughs> well, that's okay. Can't be that okay. important. Well, it's, yeah. they're, they're, it's all yeah, it's lovely ambience. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, yeah, it's it's like that, really. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you mm. about something that I saw at the Wigmore Hall mm. some Beethoven. years ago. Oh, no. I saw you and your mother. Oh, not in so a live ago. stream. Yeah, that's right. That I was can't only last was. year. Was it last year? Yeah, very. very uh, I found it a deeply moving event. Well, she, John Gilhooley, wanted her to um, give this speech, uh, which she'd done in a slightly different form. She'd addressed the Bundestag, the government in Germany, all of them, the right-wing fascists and the, and the Merkel and everybody was there, and um, uh, it was a very very powerful speech that she gave and uh, John had seen that on YouTube I think and just wanted to do it at the Wigmore Hall she said well look you know it's not quite the same I'm not addressing politicians so she adapted the speech and we we mixed it with some music as and I played it actually at the Bundestag I also played a short piece but um, uh, the Wigmore we we did something a little bit half, more half and half music and, and words can you, for those who don't know, can you provide some context as to your mother's experience? No, well, my mum is now 94. And um, uh, she, when she, she grew up in Breslau, which was part of Germany, it's now part of Poland. She and my father both grew up there. And um, in, uh, as things got worse, after Kristallnacht, after the, the night of broken glasses, they could say. Um, things got really, really difficult for Jewish people. And my grandfather was trying very hard to get his daughters, three daughters, out of the country 
um, and and of course themselves too. But the uh, quotas that were being accepted or allowed to go out were getting smaller and smaller and it was getting harder and harder and it was actually in 1942 that my grandparents were deported and that was the last my mum saw of her of them and then eventually my mother and her sister where uh, one of the sisters had got out but the other two uh were first of all sent to an orphanage, then very shortly after that to um, work. They had to work in a paper factory where they were using their um, ability to speak French to forge papers for the French resistance. And um, they were arrested for doing that and sent to prison, which was lucky for them because it meant nearly a year they were not sent to a concentration camp. So it was better to be criminal than a Jew. And uh, ironically, but and, and then they were sent to uh, Auschwitz and uh, managed to, my, because my mother played the cello and it was found that she, they needed a, a bass instrument in the women's orchestra. It wasn't an orchestra, it was a band. And she survived because she had a job there, um, a job to do that they, the Germans needed music to walk in and out, you know, march the prisoners in and out and and so on. Um, but then went to Belsen when the the, German, the Russians were advancing and they, Auschwitz was, was, was uh, evacuated and people were sent to Belsen really just to rot. So when I arrived in Auschwitz, I tried to prepare for the worst if such a thing is at all possible. But events took a different turn. I was not sent to Auschwitz on one of the mass transports of Jews who were sentenced to live or die on arrival at the ramp. I arrived in Auschwitz as a convicted criminal. And as I said before, it was better to be a criminal than a Jew. We were so-called Karteihäftlinge. We had criminal records. My head was shaved and the number 69388 was tattooed on my left arm. Anita Zara Laska no longer existed. It is hard to believe, but there was a band in Auschwitz, and it was imperative to find someone who could play the cello. So I became a member of the Camp Orchestra in Birkenau, the director was Alma Rosé, niece of Gustav Mahler and daughter of Arnold Rosé, leader of the Vienna Philharmonic and for many, many years until he was dismissed. Why? Because he was Jewish. The orchestra was based in Block 12, close to the end of the road into the camp, just a few meters from crematorium one and with an unobstructed view of the ramp, we could see everything. The arrival ceremonies, the selections, the columns of people walking towards the gas chamber to be transformed into smoke. In 1944, the transports from Hungary arrived and the gas chambers could no longer cope. Danuta Czech describes in her remarkable book, Auschwitz Chronicle, 
entered into your, oh, totally. your upbringing and, yeah. and would have influenced your playing or your totally. choices. Well, yeah. or and also I, I work a lot, my, my trio, um, who is starting this uh, Beethoven uh, cycle at the Wigmore on Sunday, uh, my colleagues are both Israelis. So uh, I, I go to Israel a lot and, you know, I feel totally at home in many ways but you know, I don't speak Hebrew, and I and I haven't kept the high holidays and so on. But uh, I'm still. This is the unusual thing about being uh, Jewish: is that you are Jewish by race, not just by religion. Mm. So it's a religion is a, is a an added thing, but it's not the only uh, point at which you're Jewish. I'm also right in thinking you've recorded something about Ben Haim. I have indeed. Well, I I did I recorded. You ben I, You you knew him. No, I'm new uh, to. I'm new to him. Yeah. I will give you the CD. <laughs> it is a fabulous piece. Right. Uh, it is a fabulous, fabulous piece. Um, ben Chaim was German, actually. So his original name was German. I can't recall it right now. And when he went to Palestine, as my father did too, as a child, he assumed a, a, a mm. Hebrew name. My uncle also did that. That he dropped Valfish and became Shalif, which doesn't mean anything in Hebrew, but it's just a sa- more Hebrew-sounding name. But, I mean, uh, Ben Chaim also, following Bloch, made a, a language um, very much uh, Middle Eastern sound. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Nobody plays it. And uh, I, I, I did a whole series for CPO, the German record label, um, of Jewish... Uh, Jewish refugee composers, uh, nine composers, so five CDs. Um, some of them came from, well, I did uh, Weinberg, who, who came from Poland, Russia, um, Ben Chaim and Bloch and Korngold, uh, Hans Gall, Reitzenstein, um, uh, Goldschmidt, Kastelnwode uh, Tedesco. All these composers came from Europe, Italy, or wherever it was, and had to run to save their lives. Many of them came here to the UK and so, uh, a lot went to the States and, and um, some of them went to Hollywood and became very successful like Miklos Roger, Korngold, you know, they kind of made the language of Hollywood uh, and others um, uh, didn't and had a harder time but it's a, it was a fascinating series to do. What draws you to them? Well, first of all, I was very fortunate that all those composers wrote first-class pieces. It's not like, oh, well, I'm no, no wonder this is not heard. No, they are really... Yeah, okay, so it's not a study in... in no, 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 no. These are... Music, this is actually... Yeah, really these are exa- fabulous pieces that, right. you know, were, were, first of all, were not allowed to be played. And then, of course, they were unfashionable to be played, you know, because the but ta- early part of the 20th century, we know that the most extraordinary changes took place in music. I mean, you had at the same time Elgar and Webern. Mm. What? Mm. How opposite? <laughs> yeah. You know, the most extremes, the most romantic, beautiful, nostalgic music, and the most tough and challenging twelve uh, tone and whatever you call it, and and Stravinsky and so on. Uh, so, I think you know, fashions in music dictate what is heard and what is not heard. And uh, I've been a great believer and advocate in, in 
bucking the trend and trying to, especially when there are treasures to be found. Uh, and I've, ha I've had the fantastic opportunity to make a lot of recordings, which is the way to get things known. Uh, what is it like today? You talked about fashions and music. What are the fashions in music today well, that you observe? Well, again. I think that uh, tonality is, is, has come back mm -hmm. a, a lot. I think that people are listening to, uh, you know, the, um, minimalist music, which is Steve Reich and, uh, and so on. And this is very accessible, almost too accessible. It's almost monotonous. Kind of, uh, Especially those who imitate yeah, I think I think it's yeah. I think the monotony for me is is those who write in that style and you, and you, and I sort of think yeah yeah, yeah it's got thanks, to say but, something yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that the really hardcore modern music what we call squeaky gate music you know <laughs> I think that that has gone out I mean it's yeah. very rare to hear. Um, it's it's already a thing of the past, although there was a good 20 years where that was what was expected and put a lot of people off. Different. Yeah, yes, and you and if you didn't appreciate it, it was King's New Clothes, I think. Yes. If you didn't like it, then something wrong with you. Yes. <laughs> and I think, thank goodness, that has passed. It's, you know, we can see what happened there. And um, people are right. People, let's say, like James McMillan, mm. is writing contemporary music, which is highly um uh you know listenable to by people who who wouldn't normally go and hear anything modern uh is there anything else that you want to tell me that i haven't asked you um i'm just thinking about because it's supposed to be related to the well we haven't talked at all about the, the much, much about the beethoven cycle which is of course something completely different tell me about the beethoven cycle well i mean my trio, uh, trio Shaham Eretz Balfish, that's Hagai Shaham Arnon Eretz and myself. That's, that's a mouthful. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but we decided we're not going to call ourselves the, uh, I don't know, the um, Croydon Trio or something, <laughs> because nobody knows who's in it. You know, at least they know who's in it. <laughs> Pragmatic. Yes. Uh, okay, so that starts when? Uh, on Sunday. This are Sunday. you, as a cellist, are you excited by the forthcoming anniversary oh well uh, yes I mean, <laughs> you, you, you uh, yeah you know what can i say <laughs> the thing is there's a very different feeling from playing bloch and beethoven they both begin with b yes mm. but one i feel totally at home and confident with right the other i feel gulp i hope i'm going to live up to this <laughs> okay so you're talking about the way of course <laughs> right course so no, that is yeah. the prospect of an anniversary that, I mean, is that like no it's it? quite funny uh, it's, I mean, Beethoven has never more, more Beethoven yeah are, but Beethoven is never ever 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 going to be off the map and um, so it's a it's a chance to okay let's hear it. let's have a, a real Beethoven fest you know <laughs> uh, all over the world and of course it should be uh, I wish people would listen to the, the messages that he sends in pieces like the Ode to Joy, you know, and that's, for instance, my son Simon, who lives just over there, has gone to sing outside Westminster every month, Ode to Joy, with a whole lot of people. Really? Yes, and in German and English. That's wow. his protest against Brexit. Wow, how long has he been doing that? Since uh, Article 50 was. So three, a long time, long time, every month. And um, lots of musicians come and, and simply messages 
musicians need freedom of movement. Yes, you know, we, that is what we do, and and Ode to Joy is, uh, you know, about so brotherhood has, and and uh, unity. And so he has pres presumably been protesting alongside the lovely Sarah Connolly. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely, and of course, I, I, a couple of times I've been down there and, and done it, and uh, you mostly get very very good vibes and smiles and waves and because there's no there's no talking it's just singing you know mm -hmm. so and they move around they go from uh, some smith square around downing street the back of the um you know the horse guards parade and so on and uh and outside westminster and occasionally you get some yobos you know it's always interesting that the the other side the people who want to leave are represented by yobos and and you know it's a it's, it's fascinating they are the aggressive ones what is daunting about playing beethoven um I well mean, you it, know, it's like any that. anything <laughs> forget that <laughs> forget that you sorry know. as an audience member i just think really why would you find that daunting well i think that the there's many things. Uh, style is a is a is a big um, is a big factor because you have to be extremely uh, attentive to the text. I mean, one is normally with everybody. I mean, if you're a good musician, you that you are always going reading everything you possibly can, getting to the bottom of it. But also every note is known it's like shakespeare every every word every note is known by everybody and they've got their favorite ways of hearing it too and you can offend people by doing something right. uh, and so it's very it's very delicate um on the other hand the music is so powerful and uh it's it's so should we say clean and direct that um it isn't frightening in that way because um, it it's clear I hear it's robust music robust is the thing yes it's very very clear but again it's it's a responsibility you know and <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter if I played the Wigmore Hall if I played it in 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 my garage you know uh, it's still a challenge it, it's a big challenge you know so is that, so that's to do with your perception of the audience no it's, a, it's not I mean I, that is partly part very but very only partly it's really whether I can actually, at that given moment, play my instrument well enough to recreate this fabulous music. Do you experience that with any other composer? Well, Bach. Right, <laughs> yeah. okay. Uh, it wears off a bit well, as soon as I get to Brahms. It's, I feel more at home, you know. Right. I'm, um, and I think... Uh, what I does think, Brahms give you? Well, Brahms is, is, is also very earthy very rich and it has a romantic passion that that is very um uh grateful you know you can in, throw yourself into that and beethoven is he, sometimes he didn't even write well for the instrument brahms always did you know and uh, it's always comfortable to play physically beethoven can be very awkward you know it's like he didn't he didn't really care about whether you can this is going to be easy or not you just got to play it. Uh, the way you talk about it makes yeah. me think that Beethoven is um, a well-crafted um, piece of furniture that has been sort of 
uh, worked on for months and months and months, whereas Brahms is a big sort of paintbrush, the broad sweep. Yeah, I, mean, no, I, I think the piece of I think Mozart would be more like that. The first, you know, something very, very precise, precise and uh, right, staid okay. and almost yeah, like porcelain to be very careful with that. Um, so I'm glad, we're, I'm glad we're not playing Mozart. <laughs> but do you do you experience that dauntingness with um, with Mozart? Yeah, I would say definitely. Right. Yeah. But and it's much more much more crystalline, you know. So Beethoven is is earthy and it is robust. Um, so that's good. But I guess it's it's just the fact that when you play the great classics, um, you want to give everybody the experience that they're hoping for. <laughs> Even if they don't know what they're hoping for. Well, that that's very refreshing. <laughs> yeah. If nobody people don't know what they've, I mean, they never heard it before. That's great. But um, yeah, uh, I think that's the point that we want to do. My my experience of going to concerts mm. is that if I go into a concert thinking, oh, I'm really looking forward mm. to hear that because that's mm. that I really enjoy that, yeah. then I will always not enjoy it. Oh, really? Absolutely, absolutely. That's a because funny thing. because I just think. Uh, there are so many there are so many elements to this performance which are if you like risks you know there's there's a, a live performer on stage mm. that might be accompanied mm. by mm. Uh, an orchestra there's a different kind of audience there's a different kind of energy in the audience mm. uh, there may not be a connection if there's no connection that do you see what I mean there are loads of different, yeah. loads yeah. Of different factors so yeah. I think to go into a concert thinking oh Really going to enjoy this. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be disappointed. Well, but on the other hand, as a performer, you, it's a great feeling. I'm really looking forward to it. Okay. Because it's, uh, you know, when there comes to the moment, that is, you're the messenger of that wonderful message and that's it. You know, that's your job. It's not, not interesting who you are. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify and Audioboom. To get in touch, please tweet at Thoroughly Good You can also follow Thoroughly Good on Facebook and read the blog at thoroughlygood.me.